Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, everyone. This is Johnny, and welcome to episode 31 in the Invest Like a Boss podcast. Back here with my co-host, Sam Marks. Hey, Johnny. Are you excited as I am for this episode? Man, I've been looking forward to this episode for months now. So for people who don't know the backstory, this is a super, super special episode that almost was not released. It's going to be incredibly entertaining. Huge value bombs dropped along the way. And for me, this is the ultimate story of hustle. So I'm excited to dig into it and hear from the man the landlord himself. Yeah. Big shout out to the landlord. And is, as you're going to hear inside the episode, the reason why we cannot even use his name is because he is definitely not one of the, those guys in the public figure. Uh, he makes a ton of money and he does it in a very, very unique way. And he's had a, he's had an even more unique upbringing. So if any of you guys have excuses on why you cannot be successful, why maybe you don't have enough education or enough money or enough, you know, drive or enough opportunities after this episode you're gonna have no more excuses so let's take a listen to episode 31 with the landlord guys welcome back to another episode of invest like a boss this episode is going to be slightly different it's off cuff we have a very unique guest so unique we can't even disclose his name but we're just going to call him the landlord and before i welcome him to the show the landlord is the real life story of rich dad, poor dad with only a sixth grade education. He's acquired over 3000 rental units. I don't even know if we can mention the location, but you have 3000 rental units, which you manage and rent and are the landlord of. So landlord, very warm. Welcome to the show and glad to be sitting next to you in Budapest. Good afternoon. Good evening. This is my first ever interview that I've done. And I am happy to be here and try to explain to your audience how things started and how things have evolved over the years. And I'll disclose my age at the end of this. And I think we're going to have some fun here. We can go through some history and how we can give a lot of the younger people and even older people that never give up attitude, Mm. how you can really persistence breaks resistance and no matter what happens in your life you can make a change and make it happen i like it inspiring and poetic and to give the listeners a little bit of context the landlord is a very large man he's very intimidating as well he kind of looks like a viking warrior uh when he moves the ground shakes a bit and actually i've had the experience of traveling with him for quite a bit uh over the last few weeks in eastern europe we were at a wedding together in the ukraine and of several of the clubs that we tried to get into they they stopped him at the door because he's just he's just a liability if he ever got mad it would take four big russian bouncers to try to hold him down and the club would be an absolute mess so it's it's interesting traveling with him uh he's he definitely stands out in a crowd and rightfully given the name the landlord because the types of units that you're collecting rent from it's not easy to collect that rent and you have to be it's not something i could do for instance because i would get walked all over but it's something you could do largely i think because of your attitude and your 
you know, your physical <laughs> presence, right? Well, uh, you left out that I have a heart the size of Mount Everest. And collecting rent in urban areas or in areas where your average rent is $800 or less, uh, people are all working on minimum wage. Mm-hmm. You have to have some sort of presence. But at this point in my career, I'm not breaking down doors anymore. I have actually have a staff that uh, is working on those types of things. But we'll get into all that about tenant behavior and about how things kind of can go really bad if you don't do the correct mm-hmm. things in being a landlord and how it could be very dangerous mm-hmm. in being a landlord. Uh, as you know, I've been shot and I have been stabbed. Mm. And in <laughs> I forgot some this, of these I forgot areas, those details somehow over the some, last couple of weeks. Some of these areas, you know, uh, the, the the type of tenants aren't necessarily always mm. law-abiding citizens. Mm. They tend to do things that they shouldn't be doing, and that's where tenant screening becomes right. an integral part of your operation which we'll get into yeah. at a later time. Yeah, it's interesting what you say. I've, I've heard some political figures and how they go about picking their security forces. And I, I was listening to one guy being interviewed and he was saying he wanted to ask if I was good with a gun, how, how much of a marksman I was. And I said, if I ever need to use this gun, then I've totally failed at my job. It should never get to that point if you're a good security guard. And it kind of goes into being a good landlord and having to collect rent if you do a good job screening and not to get off the topic mm-hmm. of landlord for a second but i'll, I'll get into the security mm-hmm. thing you know we first acquired a property it was 112 units the demography of the tenants were predominantly uh, black and uh, spanish mm-hmm. um because of the area that it was in uh and I was told by several managers there was a tremendous amount of shootings at the property. Uh, the previous ownership had told us that. So I hired some security to go with me to this property. And as I'm going to the property, they're running around with flags and they're rioting and they're going crazy. Mm-hmm. And I have these two uh, bodyguards with me. So as soon as I get out of my double black Escalate, a confrontation comes between me and another gentleman who's probably about half my age, and he says a few curse words to me. And the two bodyguards get out of the car, but the bodyguards didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I wound up having an altercation there with the gentleman, a physical altercation, and the bodyguards did nothing. So with that being said, Mm -hmm. I put the young man to the ground, Mm -hmm. and then the bodyguards all of a sudden came. Mm -hmm. So you should test your people and see what they're capable of doing right. in any industry. Right. So I started first hearing stories about you. It must have been four or five years ago through mutual friends of ours. And I want to go back before we get into that part. I want to go back to your childhood and your education and, and where you first got started. Because I know that sixth grade education was, was the last formal education that you had, correct? That is correct. So what happened at, at grade six? Where did where'd your life go? How did you, how did you find your way? Because that's, that's young. That's yeah, 11 years I old or something. I was about 11 years old. And, and the majority of people where I grew up were a lot older than me. Uh, I was a fairly small kid, so a lot of times I had got beaten up. Mm-hmm. But getting into my work, uh, my father was a scrapper. And he used to go around with a magnet and search for brass metal. 
So about six years old, I'd jump on the back of the truck with him and go around and uh, scrap Mm -hmm. and try to find junk. Then we, my dad then went on to something else, and I still kept finding the scrap. Back then, they had what was called a five-cent refund can where people would take their cans and throw them on the street or leave them anywhere. And then I'd go around with my bicycle, and I would collect the cans and then bring them to the scrapyard and get five cents for every can. After that, I had two paper routes. After that, I lived in a place, starting to give you some hints, where there were four seasons. So during the wintertime, I would shovel snow. During the summertime, I would mow grass. Back during the fall, I would clean the gutters to take all the leaves out of the gutters. And I had a route in the neighborhood where everyone knew that I was a kid that was around hustling to do whatever he could and make a buck. And it was hustle by necessity, really. Almost for survival in a way. You know, uh, that is true. I moved out of the house uh, at 13. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, it's no secret I was a problem child. It was very difficult for me to take direction from anyone. I thought that... I couldn't find my way. You know, I was a confused kid. I was surrounded around people that were double my age, as I mentioned before. It was it was troublesome as a child mm. growing up in, in, in that type of environment. So then I moved. Uh, I was living on the street for a while. And I went to a different state. Yeah, I'm from the U.S., as you know. And I started selling uh, trinkets out of a bicycle. What's a trinket? A trinket is like uh, cologne, socks, sneakers, whatever I could buy on the street, Mm. I would buy and sell to whoever I possibly could. After that, after the selling of the trinkets, I couldn't read and I couldn't write. I was about uh, 15 years old, I think, at that time. And then I went ahead and uh, I started working construction. Uh, I had a moped with no muffler on it. I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I drove the moped for about 75 miles to the construction site. I was making about $7.50 an hour. And uh, that's what I did for about two years. I worked as a laborer. Uh, I then... Got a job as a uh, bus boy, bus and tables. I couldn't be a waiter because I couldn't write. Uh, then one day, I met a guy, and he said to me, look, I want you to meet me tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, and I want you to start to drive for me. I want you to be my driver. And this guy taught me how to kind of be on time, how to be responsible, kind of how to find my way because I was entering into my teens, you know. And I worked for him for about two years driving as his driver. And it's then I carried a tape recorder with me everywhere that I went. And I was in a guy's office one day and I found a pen. And he said to me, Uh, One of my customers lives in a very big house that makes these pens. And I looked at the pen and I said, wow, it's a nice pen. It has a logo on it. I went home that day. I was renting a room from someone. And I said, listen, I have a tape recorder. I'm starting a business. And I'm going to call it X. 
and I'm going to start selling pens and T-shirts and hats and these different things with logos on it. And I'm going to start this business, but I can't write. I have this tape recorder. Mm-hmm. I'm going to learn to write, and I'm going to learn to read, but I can sell. Mm-hmm. And the next day, I started this company. And I started like this. There was pay phones back then. There was no real i couldn't afford a cell phone and if there were cell phones they were the size of your computer now Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i started this company and it would go like this good morning my name is such and such uh we sell anything with a company logo pens t-shirts mugs magnets hats calculators mouse pads water bottles when can i come in Mm -hmm. and i took that never-ending persistence breaks resistance attitude Mm -hmm. into my cold calling i'd cold call 250 people a day from a payphone I had an automatic, I know this is on tape, but I had this automatic pocket dialer that would make the sound of a quarter so I could make phone calls because I didn't have the money, basically, to make the phone calls. And I was calling all these people, and I would get hung up on and hung up on and hung up on, but it didn't bother me because to me, when you think like me, yes means no, and no means yes. And that's the attitude you have to have. You gotta, you gotta be like that. So that the uh, about the same time in history, the Wolf of Wall Street's calling and selling penny stocks, and you're the pay the payphone downstairs selling trinkets to that, all the local businesses. Yes. So after the trinket business is when I became a multimillionaire, mm-hmm. and I did that for about uh, six years. And at that time, after that, all of a sudden the internet came out. So wait, you, you made you became a millionaire through. Selling trinkets. trinkets. Wow. That's incredible. What year was this? This was in 1994. Oh, I was still in diapers. No, I wasn't actually, but. (laughs) Well, you're still a good young man. So after that, I then, I drove by the way, even though I had a tremendous amount of money, and this is important for your listeners to Mm. understand. I still drove the same car. The same Mazda 323. I didn't go out and buy a Mercedes Benz and I didn't go out and buy a big house. I didn't want my customers to really think I had any money. I didn't want to be the big flash. It wasn't my thought process. My thought process was to let my customer think that I'm humble, Mm -hmm. as being humble is important. And then when I got out of that business, I went into the uh, liquidation business. See, towards the end of my advertising career and selling these trinkets, one of the things that separated me from all the other trinket companies was I was buying trinkets that no one else was buying, closeouts from companies that were going out of business, buying them at a... Wait, so like like overstock? Yes. Oversupply? Well, it's very interesting you say overstock because when overstock.com just started, they approached me to buy my company and have me go work for the company. Mm. And I spent uh, three weeks in Utah with the chairman of overstock.com. <laughs> um, and I won't get into the story of what happened but uh, we didn't feel it was the right fit. At the I end. can't ever. I couldn't see you working in an office. Period. But that was kind of what happened in Utah. <laughs> uh, they wanted to take me and duplicate me, mm-hmm. uh, but it but it didn't 
it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So anyway, going back to the liquidation and closeout business, I was taking these liquidations and closeouts, buying them at a 75% discount, mm-hmm. selling them at a 350% margin to the customers and putting logos on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business has closed and been sold since then, so I'm not concerned that we made 350% margins as everyone else was making 30% margins. And at this point, was this an actual business that you had teams of salespeople or were you still doing all the selling yourself? Well, no salesperson was able to do what I was able to do. So what I was doing was I hired 15 people in a room to make calls and I had 11 phones on my desk, and I got to work about 5.30 in the morning, and I worked until about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. I was working between 16 and 19 hours a day, mm-hmm. um, slept probably four hours a day. So the answer to your question was I was continuously cold calling mm-hmm. myself, but then I had a team of people cold calling, but I went on all the appointments. I hired over my career three, four, five salespeople to work, but none of them were producing such as me. It was impossible. I was the number one producer. And nine times out of 10, if I, I used to call them Rocco's, mm-hmm. a sale was a Rocco, I would always close Rocco's. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm already seeing lots of parallels. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's got a new book called Outliers, in which he argues the case of people that are at the top of any industry, the best of their game, all kind of have something in common. One of those things in common was 10,000 hours of dedicated hour, hours to that. And what allowed a lot of people to get to that level was an early start and conditions and experiences that also continue to drive confidence and drive growth within that niche and you being having started at age 11 i mean no one gets starts at age 11 right i mean maybe maybe mowing their own lawn or something but you were literally hustling at age 11 doing several different types of of businesses uh, in a sense skills professions right between paper routes selling things mowing lawns shoveling snow and that just continued to build and build and build into cold calling which sounds like you probably got 10,000 hours of cold calling experience. The landlord needs a napkin. The landlord needs a napkin. The landlord requests a napkin. Luckily, we have staff here to, yeah. to assist. So it sounds like you got 10,000 hours of cold calling experience, which is kind of unheard of because that's, yeah. I mean, that's not easy to do, right? So, so it's not easy to do, but I found joy in it. Excuse me. So if you, I don't, you want me to give you a rundown on how to cold call? best way i would actually okay so let's say hypothetically your name is michael evans and you work for yahoo and you're the director of marketing and obviously 200 people are calling you a day trying to sell you something and you have an assistant there's possibly no way that mr evans is going to take your phone call right i had a very simple strategy hi my name's, for instance, let's say the landlord. Hi, I'm the landlord. <laughs> we make anything with your company logo. Oh, sir, we don't want any. Oh, I know you don't want any, but we actually scratch. Let's start over again. Okay. Hi, this is the landlord. No, scratch. <laughs> I apologize. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Listen, let's say there was a guy from R.J. Reynolds tobacco company and there was no way to get in touch with this guy 200 people a day were trying to call this guy and and get in touch with him my never ending persistence and resilience would go like this 
I called his secretary every morning at 6.30 for a year. And I said, is he in? Is he in? Is he in? And she said, can you please stop calling? The last day I called, I said, yeah, I could stop calling. I need you to do me one favor. I need you to tell me what his hobbies are. She said his hobbies were basketball and golf. And coming from where I come from, we never played basketball or golf. So I said to myself, let me make a little basketball hoop. And right on the basketball hoop, take a shot with the landlord, (laughs) hypothetically speaking, if that was a business I was in. And I FedEx that to him. And the next day, I got a phone call that I'm the most persistent human being that he's ever met in his life. And I want you to come in and it turned into a $200,000 order. Mm -hmm. And is RJ Reynolds an actual client or is that just a hypothetical? Yeah. RJ Reynolds was the client. And I'll give you one other incident. One time this marketing director told me, you know, I could never get into this company. Mm -hmm. It was a discovery channel. So I call up the marketing director and I say, hey, this is Mike Jones Mm -hmm. from the FBI. We work with the FBI. We make shirts with the FBI. When can I come in? So I started the conversation with FBI and let this be a trigger point to your brain you can manipulate words in a sense like i didn't say i'm with the fbi at the end Mm -hmm. i said i'm with the fbi meaning that i'm making shirts with the fbi so this broke the ice to get their attention whoa (laughs) this is the fbi so with those types of strategies and you got to kind of walk the line in life but not break the law you know it was harmless what i said Bend the rules, don't break the law. You, you got to bend the rules and not break the law. So each company that you would cold call, you would think of a new... I mean, you had the same general premise of a strategy, but each one required a tailored You a tailored had call, to tailor... Right? You had to tailor the phone call mm-hmm. to who the yeah. person was. You had to find out about the yeah. person to if you're... What kind of person there are. Right. And that's my greatest gift. Understanding what people are and what they want, and that's what you need to do, the people listening. You need to listen, and you need to understand what people want, because every customer and every situation is different, and none of them are consistent. Right, and I guess it also helps if you know the scale of what that potential customer could mean in terms of orders, because if there's a potential order of $200,000, you know, doing these things that you're talking about makes sense. If you're if the potential order is $40, you're not tailoring a, a phone call to them. And, for- and that's where we're different. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with you mm-hmm. because the way that I started my business was all business is good business, mm-hmm. a $40 order or a $400,000 order. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that your customers understand that because the way that I built my business was on $40 orders. Mm-hmm. Wow. So on a $40 order, if I made $20 and I did 15 $40 orders, I ran them through. So I can't agree with that. Well, what about those customers? Did a lot of those customers end up growing to be larger customers because their business correct. grew? And that's why I took them all. Business is good business. And that mm-hmm. was my thought process at that time. I like it. So how long did this Trinkets business last before you got into liquidation? About six years. Okay. Yeah. And then what made you get into the liquidation part of Well, as I told you before, as we were discussing, Mm -hmm. I was buying these liquidations at 75% off and then throwing logos on. Okay, sorry. I thought you meant liquidation in terms of 
like debt collection and stuff like no, that. No, no, no. This was liquidations as in like companies like, uh, let's say, Foot Locker. Yeah. They go out of business and they have overruns. Gotcha. Or electronics mm. companies, Toshiba, Sony. Mm. They change their style numbers from a major retailer. I would take all the excess inventory, which leads me to my next thing. And I would take all that excess inventory and I would sell it throughout different countries without damaging their name mm -hmm. in the United States. Right. So when I got to call it, so you moved from trinket sales into liquidation sales, which is essentially you're just changing the type of products you're selling and you're finding a little bit more margin because you're buying things that are oversupply, right? The margin was a little bit less, mm -hmm. but the demand because of all the retailers having this overstock and having items that they needed to just blow out and get right. rid of. Because this is the way it works. Let's say you're Sony and you're selling to Walmart mm -hmm. and Walmart tells you they want 10 SKUs mm -hmm. and those 10 SKUs get into Walmart. If Walmart tells you that they want to get rid of the SKU, you, the manufacturer of Sony, have to pull it off the shelf. Mm. So if you pull it off the shelf, okay, or if the customer goes for the Super Bowl and buys a Sony TV and then he returns it to Walmart, Sony doesn't take it back. Walmart needs to send it somewhere. And that's where right. the waxer came in. And that's what they called me. Man, and how long have you been out of the liquidation business? I've been out of liquidations now since 2007. So about 10 years because production of the world just continues just you know balloon and i wonder how that business is now comparatively right just math, pretty much every category mass production is just continues to scale and scale and scale right and when i went to college it was we, we already talked about overstock but that's that was one of the first big websites that everyone that i knew in college goes back to 2004 2005 Everyone was shopping on Overstock and buying everything from mattress liners to, you know, basketballs and stuff like that. Yeah, I did millions in sales with them through my product lines. Yeah. Um, that is why I actually got out of the liquidation business and got into the real estate business. Mm -hmm. Do tell. So in 2007, uh, they used to have these box televisions. I don't know if you remember them when you were a kid, uh, Sam. The <laughs> no, I don't. What, what okay. is it? Well, a box TV is like a big giant square, oh, yeah. okay. it's the so size of a mirror. My parents still have them at our house in in uh, Florida. We yeah. still have like a fifteen inch. They refuse to give it away for a flat screen, but well, yeah. if Seinfeld it, looks great on it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. All right. Uh, so I said to myself, I'm opening up Forbes magazine. And look at all these successful entrepreneurs and all these different things they're doing. I'm like, what could I do so I don't have to keep beating my head against the ground, running around selling things all the time? Because at that point, I was just tired of selling things and the liquidation market has changed. And, and what I'll tell you is the box TVs went to LCD TVs right. <laughs> and everything started to change. My margin started to change. It was a cash-heavy business. I was sitting with a lot of inventory. I said, let me blow out in my inventory. And all of a sudden, the world came to an end in the real estate market. And I met a guy from New York City that said to me, I know a house for sale in a specific area. Why don't you go look at it? You can buy it. I said, okay. I went down and looked at the house. 
He said, I could buy the house for $30,000. I said, well, it cost for this land probably $50,000. And to build the house is probably another $80,000. I can buy this house for $30,000. Now, this was, keep in mind, I was the only white man in the area. And I uh, was getting a lot of strange looks. There was a lot of music going. There was a lot of drug sales going on on this street. I said to the guy, I'll take the house. And within that month, I basically called up my banker. And I said, I'm going to be withdrawing a lot of funds over the next several months to buy houses. I'm starting a new business. I'm going to buy houses, fix them, and sell them. What year is this? This is in 2010. Okay. 2010 comes. I'm buying these houses. I'm fixing them. In 12 months, I put together a construction team, a real estate team, an acquisitions team to buy, fix, and sell these houses. So I was buying houses, fixing houses, selling houses. Were you buying these with, with uh, cash initially? or I was more? buying these with cash. Okay. That's correct. Because no banks were financing at that time. Yeah. But- that's a whole nother conversation financing but to buy the house fix the house and sell the house whoever's listening right now you can do it just on a smaller scale i'm going to try to explain to you how i did it and sam and i if he decides to interview the landlord again will hopefully be able to explain to you how the people listening can do it in whatever state or country you're in you just have to have the mindset persistence breaks resistance and never give up so Within that first year, how many houses were you able to, let's use the, the term flip, is that, that's what you were doing basically, yeah. right? Well, flip would be to put under contract and not close on it mm -hmm. and then flip the contract, which a lot of people do, but those are the people that don't have any money. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole nother method of real estate. Um, I never did it, but you can do it. Okay. That's flip. But to answer your question, I did uh, about 450 houses in the first 24 months. Damn. Damn. Yeah. That's incredible. So, I mean, these, this is why you had teams, right? Because you personally, if it was 450 houses in a year or, or let's say two years, that's on average a house every two days, more or less. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have, so you had scouting teams, you had people go out, find these, negotiate well, the deals. Th th no, no, this is how it worked. Mm -hmm. um, I was still working 16 hours a day mm -hmm. and working out of the office. And there were, uh, we didn't get into this, but there was an, uh, there was an auction that I went to every day mm -hmm. at the courthouse. Oh, steps. wait, 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 wait. This is okay. This is the first story I ever heard about you. This is this a story is the one. you heard about the landlord. This, is, this story has gotten around to a lot of people, by the way. I don't know if you should tell it or I should tell it how I heard it. So we, we know who well, you, what, what you, matches. You can tell me how you heard it. But before you tell me, I just want you to know. Prior to going to this auction, mm -hmm. I knew nothing really about real estate other than to buy the house that I was uh -huh. living in. Uh -huh. So when I went into real estate, I knew nothing about real estate and nothing about being the landlord. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the story I heard about you, I'm sure it's it's mostly true. Um, but I'll correct them. Okay. If it's yeah. Not. So it was. It has to do with tax liens, and and the only reason I knew a little bit about this is because when I was when I was fairly young, my dad took me to South Carolina. And we went to a tax lien auction, which is houses that were in default of their taxes. You could go and and make a bid 
to take them over. And then the person who was in default of their taxes had, say, 12 months to pay you back the bid, uh, the, the interest on the bid amount of some sort, right? And I heard this story about you that you were going in to these auctions with no knowledge of the properties, but there was very sophisticated buyers at these auctions. Let's say they're representatives of banks or some type of big uh, real estate company that had done weeks and months of research on these properties. And you would go in dressed probably similar to how you are now, full sweat suit with a landlord hat and a beard. And you would just go in and watch the people bid. And you could tell which guys had done the research and which guys didn't. And the ones that were doing the the heavy bidding, you would just come in at the very end and say, I bid whatever $1,000 more. And you would just outbid the sophisticated bidders because you knew that that was the good properties. And it was irritating the living beef out of them. <laughs> and let me tell you, what I did even more was I came up with these creative names that no one would ever think of. Like, for example, let's just say rahrah.com or frog frog leap leap LLC or quack duck LLC. So when the bidder had to say quack quack duck LLC, Everyone would look around and they'd smile. Who names a company that? Yeah. <laughs> and I took my dog's name and my mother's maiden name and made it a company. And for those of you out there that are trying to think of the name of a new company, you want to take your first pet's name and your mother's maiden name and listen to how it sounds. For example, Sam, what's your first pet's name and your mother's maiden name? Sundance Ryan. And I think that's got a great chime to it. Sundance Ryan LLC. Yeah. So you represent, you know, people that are close to you, maybe a little bit of good karma in that. Absolutely. So how did this auction thing scale? Like, I mean, how often were you going to these auctions? How many properties were you acquiring through this okay, process? So, well, that was all part of the 450 mm -hmm. that I had acquired. And something happened. Uh, the market took a, a, a crazy change. Because remember, I wasn't a landlord at that point. I was a guy buying property, fixing them and selling them. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any rental units right, at that time. Yeah, yeah. And I said to myself, you know, let me buy these things, fix them, and rent them. Right. And that's when I started to buy duplexes, triplexes, eightplexes for the first nine months, selling, uh, renting those, excuse mm -hmm. me. And then I started to buy buildings, 50 units, 100 units, 150 units, 250 units. Is this all through the auctions as well or, no, or different? No, this is through real estate brokers that I mm -hmm. cultivated relationships with and through uh, different people that heard about the landlord mm -hmm. in different communities that <laughs> knew that he was liquid and ready to buy. <laughs> so hold on, I got I to gotta go back up to this auction stuff because it's just too good to be true. So what was the scene like when you're outbidding these guys and they they came onto your strategy, right? Obviously, like I mean, they can't really do anything Very about it, question. but... Yeah. I could I could answer. So there were a lot of guys like you, thin, good looking, suits, ties, and they were uh <laughs> just, getting... to be, just to be clear, I'm not wearing a suit or a tie right now. Okay. <laughs> for the interview, but... Well I imagine that someone to interview the landlord for the first time would be in a suit and tie. But it's okay. So what happened was at the end of the auction, I was starting to every day, I was starting to get some dirty looks. And they tried to false bid me. Hmm. So 
at that time, I had uh, my valet Parker actually with me, and he brought a computer. And I used to have him go online to make sure that it was a first mortgage that I was actually buying so they weren't tricking me. And if they kept bidding, I kept bidding because I knew that if I could buy dollars for 50 cents Mm -hmm. and 25 cents, I'm buying it right. So what happened with the bankers? Well, actually, I was taking money off the table. So mm-hmm. these guys, that these other auction guys were getting mad. Yeah. I mean. I mean, we were just outbidding them. But what was the average outbid? Like $50, the, the $1,000, 10000 No, no, no. no. The, the, the average price on the houses that I was buying at that time mm-hmm. was about $78,000. Okay. You know, in that range. So let's say the bidder would go, the bidder would go, the bidder would go. It's uh Duck, duck, quack, sixty-eight thousand, mm-hmm. and then Mac lending sixty-nine thousand. Mm-hmm. Then I would just go quack, quack, duck, eighty thousand, and then everyone would look and be like, quack, quack, duck just came in at eighty thousand. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And they all shook their head in disbelief. And then quack, quack, duck, or Freddie, Frank, yeah, whatever the name of the company was took another one down. What was it what was the purpose of all the different company names? Would you buy each individual house in a new company? Yeah, the the purpose of 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 putting in a different names was that my lawyer had advised me that it would make sense to put each property yeah. in a different LLC. I think that's standard advice. I just didn't know if there was another reason like if it was to irritate you, them more. Yeah, or or give you um uh, to try to hide you. You know, in, in in terms of like, oh, it's not quack quack duck for the hundredth time. No, it's, no, it's no. It's a new company. Every, who's, yeah. Everyone there no. was. It'd be like me, you, and a group of people in a mm-hmm. room. They knew who I was. Yeah, I was certainly disliked. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> and what? But I like being disliked. So, so you never started the actual bid, right? You would see two of the top teams or firms bidding, and you're like, okay, that's a good property. Yes, I never ever started the first okay. bid. All right, I was always the last. I love it. I love it. All right, so back to the the rental shifting into instead of flipping into rentals, and now you've started acquiring blocks of units, and these are blocks of units in low income neighborhoods. Only low income. And how low income is low income? Is it, is there like different grades of low, low income? Low income is basically where you're living on food stamps. You have government subsidy of some sort, mm-hmm. and you sit outside your apartment all day on a box drinking a beer and your nephew or child is selling drug paraphernalia and shooting at the people across the street. Mm. And I, you've, you have had quite a few shootings at your properties, haven't you? Yes, we actually just had a carjacking yesterday. I can show you the text message that yeah. I just got from one of my property managers. Would you like to see it? Uh, yeah, I'd like you great. to read this for the audience. Hold on. Kindly read this last text message so you know that there's no stories made up here. Please read this for your audience. And this is a uh, easy day. Okay. It says, gate repaired. I put a watch order on this property. FYI, one of our tenants got carjacked a few days ago and they were fired at. I'm guessing fired at and shot at. Yeah. It's a little gang, yellow building. I actually heard the gunshots. Yeah. So this is a typical day at company mm-hmm. where um you know i i run a pretty strict ship i mean if the cars leak oil we tow them if you don't pay the rent we tow them if you don't 
pay the rent. We basically do whatever we can to get you out as quickly as possible. So I want to chat briefly a a little bit about the business side of the business and how you went from, I'm assuming you, the, the first move you made into the rental business was acquiring, say, a block of maybe ten, uh, one property of, say, 10 rental units? No. The mm-hmm. way that I got into it was I took just single-family homes that I had left yeah. that I hadn't sold uh-huh. and started renting those. Okay. And then that scaled into multi- Buying yeah. duplexes and triplexes, eightplexes, and then two multifamily buildings. But most of the listeners, I'm assuming, I'm not suggesting, are probably going to start with either a single-family house or a two-family house. Mm-hmm which I think would be a great start for someone that's just getting out of college versus renting. Right now, rates are very low. Mm-hmm. In the States, you can buy a two-family house in right. maybe an area that, that, that isn't that great that possibly you could see some change in yeah. and then rent out the front and stay in the back or buy a house and rent out the rooms on some of these different websites that allow you to do that. Right. And then you own versus renting mm-hmm. and then all that money that you're paying for rent if it's a thousand dollars a month is twelve thousand dollars a year which could be going towards your mortgage right so today you have about three thousand rental units yes so you went from 2011 to 2016 was that's how long started you've been, with one house started 2010. with one house and you've scaled it to three thousand in, in more or less six, uh, five or six years that's correct so, now we have some acquisitions going on. Where we're making some changes at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and we're selling off some stuff. Uh, I feel it's time to sell mm-hmm. certain properties. Uh, I don't love selling, but sometimes it, 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 it makes sense to sell. Can you take us through a cash flow example of one property or even an individual unit? Sure. So... There's completely different cash flows on buys and flips Mm -hmm. versus on the rental side of things. (coughs) Excuse me. But to give you an example, let's just take a 34-unit building, okay? Mm -hmm. And let's say I purchase this building for in a very challenging area for $52,000 a unit, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, when you're buying real estate, you need to look not only at what you're buying, but how much improvements it actually needs to bring it to a point of where someone's going to want to live there. And my whole idea in this business when I started was to help people. So what I thought to do when I bought these buildings is evict every single tenant, clean up the property, get everyone out that's bad, redo all the units, and then rent the units for the maximum amount of money that the area will allow me to rent it at. Mm -hmm. So I bought it at $55,000 a unit. I put in, let's say, $5,000 a unit. Okay. So I'm in at 60. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now let's just say $60,000 for a unit. I'm renting that unit at $1,300 a month. That doesn't seem low income to me. $60,000 a unit? No, that seems low income to me. $1,300 a month doesn't. I mean, I was renting a place downtown West Palm Beach for an, like a nice two bed near the water for 1300 a month. Yeah. So I'm giving you two and three bedroom prices. We can go down to like units where we charge okay, gotcha. $600 a month. Yeah. 
<clears throat> excuse me, where we charge $600 a month. Mm-hmm. Is that low income to you? I guess I was thinking low income was, and I, and again, I don't know how much of this is even, maybe some of that subsidized by the government, but I was thinking low income would be somewhere around, you know, I don't know. Well, it depends on the state. Like if you go to Alabama, you're in Florida. But if you go to Alabama, for example, you can rent a two-bedroom unit for $400 right? Yeah, and $300. I've just been out of the States for too long because, you know, I'm living in places where you can rent a nice place for $500 a month. But um, I can assure you that the average rent in the United States has to be $800. I mean, I'm guessing, but it's an interesting statistic. We should look it up. Yes. Look it up now. Okay. I'm not connected to the internet. Okay. We'll add it. We'll add it to the show notes. Where's the assistant? Uh, Can you look it up? (laughs) Average, what are, what are we looking up? We're looking up the average rent in the United States of America. Average single single family rent or? Uh, average apartment, yeah. two-bedroom apartment rent. By the way, it's always better to buy two-bedroom units than one-bedroom units if you can Okay. when you're buying. The reason being, one-bedrooms tend to leave a lot faster than two-bedrooms. Le- oh, you mean the tenants actually. Right. Ah, because two bedrooms would be families and families yes, don't want to leave. Right. Dang, learn something new every day. So back to the cash flow, that was interesting. So you said you'd be in a typical unit for $60,000 and you could rent it for $1,300. No, 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 no. Scratch that. Let's say I bought the house for $30,000, mm-hmm. okay, the apartment for thirty, mm-hmm. and I'm renting it at $800 a month to $900 a month. You do the math. So $900 a month times 12 Uh is how much? Got it. Uh, That would be uh, $10,800. Okay, so how long does it take to pay back the unit? How much how much was the unit? Ten thousand eight hundred thirty thousand dollars Uh three years. That's a pretty good payback. That's isn't fantastic. It? Yeah. Less expenses. Thirty percent thirty percent returns. Yeah. So after expenses and everything, you know, you're looking at like uh we're netting about twenty two percent. Now, <clears throat> if you took a loan from a bank, you're looking at forty five percent returns. Mm-hmm. I was paying cash for everything. And is that true today for the things you do or you, or you get mortgages? Today at this time, we're starting to take mortgages so we can scale up and grow. Yeah. yeah. So I know Johnny, my co-host who you've met, his dream is to, he, you know, all he focuses his life on is passive income and, and building revenue streams that don't require a lot of time, which he's been very good at in the online world. And I know he really wants to get into this rich dad, poor dad concept of exactly things that you're doing and buying these, these multi unit properties, uh, like 15 property, uh, 15 unit properties and renting them. But what I know he doesn't want to do is the landlord part where he has to deal with all the, the, the BS. management, <laughs> right. okay. The everyday drama. Mm-hmm. And you know, the drama is just endless. Um, I could give you stories. Uh, that we got to we got to we got to drill down on a couple of them. I mean, some for, of my more off, interesting yeah, stories. Yeah, but for, before we go into the crazy stuff, I mean, just give us an idea of let's say what's a typical property? Thirty units. Well, let's just start with a single family home. When I was buying those, and okay. we had squatters, mm-hmm. and then we had people that basically, when we took possession of the house, when we got the title, mm-hmm. we had to go with the police while they're cooking pasta in their underwear in the living room Mm -hmm. and actually throw them out of the house on Christmas. Okay. So imagine me acquiring a house, Mm -hmm. going there with the police on Christmas and telling them they need to get out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it wasn't the greatest feeling in the world. I mean, 
So I've had some very unique experiences. I could tell you in a 10plex that I had where we had coin laundry, which is a stream of revenue, which mm-hmm. I try to put at all the properties. Okay. We went to the property, and I like to drive all the properties. Uh, to this day, I still do. I, you always have to take a look at your real estate and drive it. Mm-hmm. So I'm driving the property. I get out the car. I, lo- I look outside. I walk the property, and I see that the grass is a little overgrown, so I'm making notes of everything that needs to be done. And I see a sign on the laundry machine It says... Come to my house if you want a discount on your laundry. <laughs> and I look at the laundry machine room and I see that there's a the coin mechanism is taken out of the machine and there's another machine next to it. And I knock on the guy's door and he says he doesn't know I'm the owner of the property. He says, You want your laundry done? I go, Yeah, how much is it? He goes, It's fifty cents instead of a dollar fifty. I go, is that right? I'm the landlord. You can't do that. So the guy, I call up two maintenance workers. I have them come to the house. I leave the property. We take his machine. We put his machine by the dumpster to throw it out, and we hook our machines back up. I go back the next day. I look, and the guy has a washing machine on the front porch. Oh, my God! I call up my maintenance worker, and I say, listen, go knock on this door. And tell this guy that you're going to take the machine if he doesn't and throw it into the dumpster. Next day, I go back to the property again. The machine's still there. I knock on the door. The guy comes out with a two-by-four, swings the two-by-four up my leg, hits me with it. I grab the guy by his head. I take his head. I mush it into the concrete. I proceed to hit him about 10 to 15 times. I beat him to a pulp. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, this is all documented, so you know I don't want any problems. But um, you know, it wasn't a comfortable situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, here I am in the position I'm in, and I have to deal with this type of stuff. It's not that comfortable. So, how, when it comes to a situation like that, how much leverage do you have with the local police to be able to handle things like that, and how much of it do you have to do? by yourself or with your quote-unquote maintenance team? You know, when I first started, I got I was very hands-on and dealing with this, but I after getting shot, I said to myself, you know, I'm too old. I don't want to be dealing with this. Of no course. Right? I mean, if you have this scale of operation, don't you just have your own kind you of do, hit but, you squad? Know, my philosophy is I never want to put anybody in a situation that I don't want to be in myself. That's nice. So I want to show my staff that I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. Mind you, I didn't get into this. Mm-hmm. I've done every single position in the company. Yeah. I've laid the floors. I've worked on the air conditioning units. Mm-hmm. I learned everything there was to learn seven years ago about construction. I didn't know anything about construction other than being a laborer. Right. So what happened with the guy in the laundry machines? Well, we evicted the tenant, mm-hmm. and uh, now the laundry machines are profitable again. There's nobody. <laughs> the laundry in. machines are back in business. Maybe you should get a hat instead of saying the landlord, the laundry man. Yeah. Depending on which part of the neighborhood you're at. I'm not into washing anything. So back to evictions. You have 3,000 units. How many evictions are going on at any given point in time? Well, that all is... Depends on the management. Mm-hmm. If the and we've had bad management before, and if you have bad management, you have bad properties. For example, we had a 112 unit property. 
we had to evict 112 tenants mm -hmm. because the manager was putting tenants in and collecting the rent herself, not entering it into the books and not doing background checks on the tenants. And those tenants do nice things, right. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So how many people do you think you've evicted over the last five years? That I did myself personally, walked in, grabbed them by the head and threw them out the door? <laughs> that would be a good statistic to have as well. But I was just thinking oh. in general, so maybe you can give us both. <laughs> so we threw out, I would say, 2,200 evictions. O over, say, five years. Yeah. And is that, I, I know. That's not common. That's not common, but I've heard that the eviction process, depending on which state you're in, can just be absolute nightmares. Like you have to in get New lawyers York, involved. It take like up to eight, a year. Yeah, eight months, so a year. So it all ends to losing tremendous amounts of money. But this is such a broad topic, Sam, yeah. because it depends on the property, the demography of the tenants, the condition of the property. Is it in an A area, B mm -hmm. area, C area, D area? So is the is the <coughs> the underlying point that evictions suck? For both sides, and you always lose money. So the best, the, you always evictions want to are not a good situation mm -hmm. for anybody. It's obviously in certain circumstances the people that really can't afford a place to yeah. live. What we try to do with the company is provide them with homeless shelters or mm -hmm. some sort of government subsidy to work with the tenant. And my property managers could probably tune in a lot more with the management side of things and the better way to deal with these tenants and the circumstances that are going on. When I first started in my career, I was dealing with it, but it's not one of my strong point skills. And what I learned in business, one of the most important things is to really do what you're good at. Mm -hmm. And what I'm good at is buying, selling. Right. So the evictions part, that's just, that's just basically a number, a loss that's, that's, built into your cash flow. You you know you're going to have a certain amount of evictions each month and there's margin for that built into your cash flow. That's correct. So then on the on the uh, buying and selling side, so I'm still lost on how you scaled from 1 to 3,000 in 5 years. That's again, is that going to <laughs> into you the landlord being heavily active day in day out and buying or is this or is are you conducting a lot of this stuff through acquisition teams you know now. i get a kicked out of you statistical geniuses you know you guys uh how you did this how you do that how you do your work you don't sleep you just work 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 and i'm gonna tell you how you do it so how we did it how did we do it we did it like this <clears throat> we we meaning me and that's what you always have to say I shouldn't be saying this online, but you always have to have, say we. Act as if. If you only have 10 people, act as if you have 200. No one needs to know what your company's doing. Yep. So with how we basically got scaled up was when different brokers in the area started to get wind that we were buying and our company became publicized in certain publications, we started to get approached by a lot of different brokers. And that's really how things are done in the United States, networking. So through different networking organizations and different real estate brokers, we started to acquire these buildings. And at what point during this whole thing did you get shot? Uh, I was shot in 2013. And I was assaulted in 2015. What, what, what's a, what do you mean by specifically with assaulted? 
I was at one of our properties and a young African-American man's car was towed Mm -hmm. because it was leaking oil. I asked the property manager what was going on. She was crying inside the office. I walked outside. As I walked outside, he cracked me in the mouth as hard as he could. I've never been hit that hard in my jaw. I was spitting blood out of my mouth. I looked at him and I said, that's a real bad thing, boy. That's a real bad thing you did. Obviously, I didn't go down. But I said to myself at that point, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Do I beat the living shit out of this kid? Mm-hmm. Do I shoot him? And I looked at him in the eyes, and I could tell he was a troubled boy. So I just basically walked inside the office, shook it off, went to the hospital because I had a huge laceration inside my mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, another day at the office. Yeah. And how about the shot? The shot. Where'd you get shot? I got shot in the lower side of my thigh. Was it a, a bullet aimed at you or a random? Oh bullet? yeah, no, they were shooting at us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell me more. Like, were you in a car? Are you in the <laughs> the apartment? Well, in this specific property, uh, the gangs were extremely upset because we were doing all the evictions, mm-hmm. and we were trying to clean the property up Mm -hmm. and cleaning the property up isn't always comfy you know you got to get these bad guys out there's a lot of bad guys you got to get the bad guys out and there was a gang obviously there and it was broad daylight and uh, they were getting sick and tired of us calling the police every day and i got out of the car and i saw one of the jitterbugs uh pull out a pistol and as he pulled out the pistol he's about 45 feet away from me and at that time uh i wasn't armed and uh i turned around and he started shooting and uh <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what was it what kind of gun uh 22 just a, caliber ah, it's just gun. like a it's just like a pellet man it didn't feel good <laughs> i can tell you that you seem to be walking okay these days still yeah i'm walking all right but well, no what, one likes to get shot listen what would what would uh being a landlord of three thousand units be without having taken a bullet in the thigh it, it's not about how many units you have it's about how profitable you are uh, how profitable are you fairly profitable young man <laughs> we're doing okay yeah uh, after this acquisition um I think what we're going to start to do is look to get into some development. Would you say that you're one of the largest private property owners in the state? No. There's guys that have 10, 20, 30,000 units, but they're hedge funds. Or they're like REITs or something, yeah, right? They're, yeah, they're REITs. Yeah. Um, I could be one of the largest in my specific sector. Mm-hmm. See, not everybody will go into this sort of real estate. And that was one of the things that caught my eye because I didn't want to play around with the big boys. Yeah. Um, and that's what you got to look at. You got to look for things that not everybody else is doing. I mean, what, you know, these bankers, lawyers, accountants, they're mm-hmm. not going to go into these areas. Oh, no, no, no. You wouldn't go into this area. No, no, no I wouldn't. I mean, I... You're feared for your life. I would even question going into a university and dealing with university kids, you know, parties and, and mess ups and, and not from a danger standpoint, just from all the headaches that would go with it. I, 
I only own, I own five properties and I mean, they're compared to what you deal with, it's paradise, but on a regular ongoing basis, because I don't have a property manager and so, you know, if I have to deal with three or four light bulbs going out and stuff and I have to make those calls, it's a pain in the butt. So I guess I would look at everything from, I've never even thought of it from a danger standpoint until I met you. Um, it's just a whole different class of properties, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And like you said, it just takes a different type of mindset. But if you look at, you know, some of the example returns that you're getting, obviously that's, you know, that's what the returns are there. Yeah. You just, you know, obviously no one on this audience is going to be able to, in one day, acquire this many units. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to start small. Yeah. And that's really how I recommend it. I recommend you start with one house, or one duplex or triplex in an area that might need a little bit of work. Now, be careful. You don't want to over-improve the place. Right. You want to make it suitable for someone to live. Do you think there's... This a- isn't your house. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Is there value in the way that you acquire properties? And Let's say you acquire five properties in a, in, a, in a neighborhood or an area, and by renovating them, it builds up the entire... It builds up the market value of all the properties because the area improves? There is ways to do that uh, if you buy all the properties in the area, mm-hmm. but you don't want to buy a property in a really, really bad area that's been a bad area for 25 years and then make it really nice. I mean, I could get into situations where we've redone a whole entire apartment mm-hmm. and the next day come back and everything's ripped out. The air conditioning <laughs> unit, all the copper wiring, all the lights, everything that we did. And this has happened time and time again. You have employee theft. You have uh, people in the area theft. Mm-hmm. It's not comfy. Imagine putting in a brand new $3,000 air conditioning unit the next day, and it's gone. That's got a sting. But that's just part of the business for you guys, right? It's part of the business, but you have to come up with methods and ways like, for example, with air conditioning units, now we put steel cages on top of them with bolt locks. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit harder to get to them. Hmm. Very interesting stuff. So what have you come up with as a plan for the future? What Do you enjoy doing this stuff now? I mean, it's got a, a huge scale to it. You know... But with scale comes more headaches, right? For me at this point, which we didn't get a chance to discuss too much, I really like to see a property go from a really bad property to an amazing property mm-hmm. where it's functioning well, I have good management in place. The employees there are happy. The tenants there are happy because we're able to give people something better than they can get anywhere else. And what's next for me is a lot of people tend to think that what I've gone through is fairly humorous and <laughs> exciting and not many people have experienced the types of things that I have seen. And a lot of the stories that you've gone through probably are not even appropriate for this podcast that, that, that's that's <laughs> definitely true i'm thinking of creating a cartoon and uh, i think a lot of people would find some humor in it um a south park version of the landlord yeah i like it can i be a character in it i'll be the guy in the suit and tie the little good looking guy that sits in the office and uh I think we're going to put you collecting the coin laundry money in urban areas. (laughs) Give me a little bit of a tougher image. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, throw uh, like Eminem. Yeah. Put some, uh, put a little bit of grit on these, these corporate hands here. Yeah. I like it. Call you Eminem. Well, man, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Jeez. Every time I see you, there's a new story. I love it. It's really fun to sit down and, and document it. And both from the business side, 
and the entertainment side. Of course, awesome value on both sides. Is there any anything you want to uh, leave the listeners with? The, anyone who's yeah. trying to get out? Yeah, a lot of people out there, we've, we've talked about this a lot. There's lots of different ways to invest in real estate. You can do it on you know REITs. You can do it through funds. You can, of course, acquire rental properties. You've obviously taken a dramatic, extreme approach on one side. And maybe yeah, just some I, I simple advice. I want to leave advice, the listeners yeah. with this. No matter where you are in the world, find yourself a mentor, someone that you look up to, someone that you think has good values and good morals and good business ethic. And don't expect people to give you anything in life because it's not going to just be given to you. You have to work for it. And if you're working and you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to make a lot of money if that's your goal in life and it then never stay in a place for more than six months stay at a place and always seek to where you're going to go next in life because if you don't look for the future you're going to get stuck and it's never too late to change your life you can change your life at 15 20 25 30 35 40 45 50 and etc yeah so the 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 what i leave to your listeners is work hard work hard work smart be honest and don't take shit from anybody ted turner said early to bed early to rise work your butt off and advertise no it's early to bed early to lie no Early to bed, early to rise, fish like hell and make up lies. <laughs> I like it. I think it's a good way to sum up the episode. My grandma said something very interesting to me before she passed away. The five F's. Find them, feel them, fool them. You can say it will be it out. And forget them. <laughs> okay, buddy. Looking forward to a round two down the road. And we'll keep everyone posted on uh, The Landlord, the cartoon series. Thank you. Nice meeting you. It's been a pleasure. Take care. See you, buddy. Man, thank you so much, the landlord, for sharing that with us. That is insane. It, it, it is li- literally the coolest story I've ever heard. And if it wasn't for the fact that I met him in person, I know 100% his personality, his drive, his hustle, it, it, would, it, it would seem like a movie. Man, I think that was such a huge benefit for us, just being able to actually meet him in person and know that these stories are real and that the figure is real and also just knowing him as a person and knowing, yeah, he's got an amazing heart and he's just this incredibly massive, intimidating figure that is just like a big teddy bear. Uh, and just hearing some of his stories and like hearing them all come out and, and what he went through in his lifetime to getting to where he is, is incredible, incredible and, and awesomely inspiring. Yeah, and it really it makes it so we have no more excuses because if he can, <laughs> you know, figure this out, if he can teach himself how to read and use a payphone to make sales calls with the technology that we have today, I mean, I'm sure every single person has a laptop or at least access to one. There's almost no reason why we can't be just as successful if we had the same amount of hustle, you know, grit and determination. This is the guy that everybody out there should be comparing themselves to. Everyone should be, wake up tomorrow morning and say, what excuses do I have when this guy can do everything that he did off of what he was given, off the, the, the hand of cards that he was dealt? It's incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm fired up for Monday morning. Yeah, 100%. I'm the exact same way. And I know that you know when you grow up in 
you know, like if we grew up in certain in certain households where our parents may be a bit more financially savvy or they have better jobs or they're more educated. Um, it's, you know, we grew up in certain neighborhoods. We have, you know, we do have a leg up. It's, it's you know, just the fact that we both grew up in the U.S. and not somewhere else. We already have a leg up, but this kind of shows that no matter what situation you grow up in, it, you know, no matter what country we grow up in, there's ups and downs. I mean, there's going to be people more privileged growing up in certain parts of Africa than even he grew up in in the U.S. So a lot of it is a roll of the dice, but it's more about what you do with that roll of the dice than what you're handed with and what you're entitled to when you're born. Yeah, that's very well said. And I almost think that a lot of people that are that grow up privileged have a handicap in some ways. They might be entitled to more. They might have more in their will or their inheritance. But very few of them grow up with that type of hustle and that spirit that the landlord has. I mean, I know a lot of people growing up that had a uh, that were well off, and the kids grew up to be, you know, drug addicts and and this and that, and and uh, more or less deadbeats. So, you know, there is no perfect hand in life. It's it's all what you make of it, just like you said. I definitely agree. I I think we all start in a different place, but then it's up to us at a certain point. I mean, maybe it's when we're eight years old or ten years old or fifteen years old, but at a certain point, then it's completely up to us. Then we have to be personally responsible. I know. Uh, as an example, like MMA fighters, the ones that grew up in you know very kind of privileged households where their parents are wealthy and they have another option where they don't have to fight to survive, they know that they can just get a job you know uh, at their parents' firm or in banking or something. In mm. general, they don't have as as much uh, grit as someone who you know fighting is literally their only chance at having a good life. And I'm not saying that you know. You know, someone that grew up where they can attend the best uh, martial arts schools or have one-on-one training, it doesn't mean that, that they don't have a leg up because of that. But then when it comes down to it, when it comes down to adversity and, you know, getting your butt kicked in the ring uh, or grinding it out or going through the the hardships, not just the not just the reward uh, parts of it, that's when the true character comes out. And I, and I think character isn't something that can be bought. Yeah, I think getting punched in the nose hurts a little bit more when you grow up in a privileged family. I, I can absolutely agree with that. So, uh, big thank you to the landlord for letting us finally release this episode. I, I know he was kind of, you know, going teetering, tottering back and forth because it is a very, very intimate story. And I know mm. that people who listen to this, you know, really appreciate someone who, you know, didn't grow up with, you know, an easy, privileged life sharing their hard work and the determination. And I, I really think that he's going to be a great example. So thank you so much. And I'm so glad that I got to hang out with, uh, with you and as well as Sam in a sauna <laughs> in, inside Europe <laughs> uh, and chat about investments in life. So that, that was a very inspiring moment. Yeah, definitely. So Johnny, does this change your opinion, view, and or motivations in real estate at all? Yeah, this makes me not ever want to get into that type of real estate because I know how much work and effort it is. Uh, I, I definitely mm-hmm. don't want to get shot or um, have to deal with that. Or have to you know carry around, you know, or even have you know put myself in that situation. But it sure. also shows that there's opportunities in places that other people are not willing to go, and there's a lot of money to be made in those opportunities. Uh, it's also smart that you know now that he's kind of over that hump 
where he's like, okay, now I can pay property managers, um, you know, maintenance staff, as, as he calls them, to take care of that thing, those things for me. I'm not going to be the one putting myself in that situation all the time. Uh, I'm sure, you know, those guys get some hazard pay. Uh, there's, you know, other things that they, they do to kind of prevent it. But personally, I wouldn't want to go into it, even though I can see there's a lot of money to be made in those types of investments. Yeah, I agree totally. So guys, hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll we'll try our best to bring more episodes like that in the future. And hopefully we'll get the landlord on for a round two because there's just endless value bombs, learning, and gosh, I mean, the amount of experience that he's had through what he's gone through to where he's gotten is incredible. So I hope we hear more from him on this podcast, but also just in general books. He's talked about uh, having a cartoon in the future. That would be endlessly entertaining. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And do us and do all your friends a favor and share this episode. So even people who are not necessarily into investing, I really, really believe that everyone will benefit and enjoy this episode, not only from an entertainment point of view, but also from you know a motivational and inspirational point of view. Definitely. So guys, big shout out to, again, all of the listeners, all the support and all the reviews that have been coming in. We have a new review, right, Johnny? Yeah, we got a couple new reviews, but who do we have today? Okay, we have Jake Ostra from the United States. It's a five-star review. He says, the podcast has been highly effective in helping me learn the foundations of investing. I revisit episodes almost daily as it's helping me learn languages of business. It plays a major role in helping me to obtain my MBA. However, I'd recommend to everyone, thanks guys for putting together such a quality podcast. Cheers from Jake. So big thank you, Jake, as well as everyone else who's taken the time to leave these awesome reviews of the podcast. This is the best way for us to gain rankings inside the iTunes system so we can show up uh, when people are looking for new cool podcasts, aside from you guys telling all your friends about Invest Like a Boss. Uh, And as a thank you, we are giving away another $25 Amazon gift card each and every month. And this month, we have a female listener, Jennifer Donahue. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for leaving a review and as well as sending in a screenshot so we know who you are and we have your email so we can put you into the drawing. If you guys haven't done that yet, please take a screenshot of your review and email it to us. Uh, just click on the bonus tab under investlikeaboss.com and you can be entered to win. Each and every month, we give away another uh, gift card. So Jennifer, congratulations. Guys, keep a listen for next week. We have some amazing episodes coming up in December, some CEOs, some primetime investors, and some gurus that you will hear from first here on this podcast. So thanks for everyone's support and look forward to another great episode of Invest Like a Boss next week. See ya. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.